0: Owens and you're listening to the Webby nominated podcast moms don't have time to read books thanks so much to my sponsor Libro FM Libro FM audiobooks lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including many New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as other audiobook companies, but you're going to be part of a much different story, one that supports the community. You can even choose which local bookstore you'd like to support, which is so cool. Listeners of my podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Just go to Libro.fm, L-I-B ro.fm and enter code zibby z i b b y with every time you listen to an audiobook now you can be proud that you're supporting a local bookstore and the best part is that i have my own playlist on libro fm which is so cool. So the books that have been on my podcast and that I'm recommending are now in my own playlist. If you go to Libro FM slash playlists, you can find it, which is so great. I'm really excited to be here today with Christopher Cerf, who is an Emmy and Grammy award-winning author, composer, humorist, and producer, a charter contributing editor of the National Lampoon and a former senior editor at Random House. He has written 300 plus songs for the Sesame Workshop Productions. He's the author of children's book, There's a Skunk in My Bunk, Spinglish, The Experts Speak, Blackie, The Horse Who Stood Still, with Paige Peterson, and many other books. So welcome, Chris.
1: Well, hi, Zibby. Really great to be here.
0: (laughs) Great to have you. So first, I want to talk about your latest book, There's a Skunk in My Bunk, which is fantastic. I could read a quote, but it would be a rather short quote. Boat, goat, coat, moat, float. The boat with the goat and the coat in the moat does not float. <laughs> anyway, my little guys loved this book, and they think that you are Dr. Seuss. So tell me about how this whole book came about.
1: Well, there is a little bit of Dr. Seuss involved in the story, in that back in the 1950s, my mom and Dr. Seuss started beginner books. It was based on the fact that Dr. Seuss had already written The Cat in the Hat, which he wrote because John Hersey, the novelist, wrote a piece in Life magazine suggesting that American kids weren't learning to read because their primers were so boring. <laughs> Someone like Dr. Seuss should be writing them using the same word lists that the people who wrote Dick and Jane books were using. And Ted Geisel, Dr. Seuss, said, okay, I'll do that. He wrote it, the cat in hat, as a result, using only about 300 different words and was a gigantic hit right away. Obviously the public felt books like this would be needed and besides it was a great book but Ted didn't plan to do any more but my mom had the idea why don't we do a whole series of these Ted you could do some more and we'll get some other writers that you and I pick to do it and they started beginner books. Ted then wrote another book my dad who co-founded Random House, who published all these things. My dad bet Ted that he couldn't do a book with just 50 different words. And Ted <laughs> took the bet and wrote Green Eggs and Ham, which was <laughs> the next beginner books. Ted always claimed my dad never paid off the bet. He <laughs> sold tens of millions of copies, so that would be pretty silly. But in any case, beginner books were a great hit and have been going ever since. But over the years, they got away a little bit from the original formula of how Ted said the pages should be laid out so kids should understand them and the word list and all that. And uh, Random House got in touch with me a couple years ago and said, Chris, you've been writing all these Sesame Street songs. You worked at beginner books with your mom at the beginning, which I did. Do you think you could write a book? in the old beginner book style, using the original rules. And I said, I sure would love to try. That would be bringing things full circle. And I tried and I wrote a skunk in my bunk and they liked it. And it was just published a couple of months ago. So it happened.
0: Oh, that's so exciting. That's such a great story. Oh my gosh. Like, over all those years and coming back to where it all began. <laughs> That's great. Do you have more of these coming?
1: Well, I hope so. Not yet, but I'm planning to do another one. They would like that. Good. Because also a really good start.
0: My, my kids would also like that. So, you know, you have a little fan club <laughs> in the house.
1: Excellent. Oh, well, I'm thrilled to hear
0: that. <laughs> so you've been very focused on childhood literacy, I feel like, throughout your career with all the work you've done on Sesame Street, the show that you did Between the Lions, which I want to hear more about. Somehow I don't, I must have been in the wrong age when you were doing the show. But tell me a little more about Between the Lions, the literary show that you did.
1: Okay, well, Between the Lions was a show on PBS that our own company, Serious Thinking, produced, in collaboration with WGBH up in Boston, a great public station there. And it was on the air for 11 years, so it was a great run. And it was very much in the format of Sesame Street in that we used a wraparound story and lots of little segments that were designed by teachers and writers together to help kids learn to read. And the show was set in a library that was run by the Lions, uh, that ordinarily only stand outside. But our library was actually run by lions. And the pun, of course, between the lions uh, has to do with reading. My dad always said that great projects always start with terrible puns, and that's a really tough (laughs) I love it. Great projects start with terrible puns. A lot of the original Muppet performers working on it, and a lot of writers from Sesame, tremendous educators from Harvard Ed School and other places, from Brown, really top people. And we had a great run. So, and I think we taught some kids to read that research shows that it was very helpful. And now we have a new project to take that show and take the best segments from it and actually put them into classrooms as part of the first grade reading curriculum. Oh, wow.
0: That's great.
1: Hopkins University on that. So doing a lot to help kids learn to read even now.
0: What about putting them all on Netflix or something? Have you... Are they on Netflix or?
1: We'd love to do that and I hope we will get there.
0: Okay, <laughs> I have faith. I bet you'll find a way.
1: We're talking to WGBH about that.
0: Oh, good. There
1: are clearances and performance rights and things that need to happen, but I think it's going to happen. Okay, okay. and I'll let you know when it does. Yeah, Make please
0: life. do for sure. <laughs> what was it like for you contributing so much to these amazing shows like Sesame Street songs, Electric Company, all of these classics? I mean, from when I was little. I mean, how did you come up with all these song ideas and? What's it like writing a song versus writing a book? I haven't tried
1: to write a song, really. I don't know how to answer that exactly. (laughs) It's fun. I love doing it. I love the idea that I can do things that are fun and funny and that help kids and that parents might like too, and that I might like too. And we get to work with incredible performers. The Muppets are amazing. And, of course, the music people are amazing, too. We've had a lot of celebrities in addition over the years, so I've gotten to work with some of the people I idolize, singing my songs to help kids learn to read. You can't ask for much more than that. And answer to your question about how you go about it both Sesame Street and Between the Lions had a curriculum that was drawn up by, as I mentioned earlier, top educators. And there are learning goals in that curriculum. That might be that kids should know the difference between the letter B and the letter D because they look alike, or they should know that EA sounds like E or whatever. And you just take something off that list or they assign you one and you write a song about it. It's actually easier for me to write a song with an assignment like that than just to sit down with a blank piece of paper or a computer screen and write anything. I I don't know where to start then.
0: Yeah, assignments are always really good. (laughs) I like assignments. So it's so funny because I feel like there's, I mean, not, I feel like there is this huge backlash against screens, right? Too much screen time, limiting screens, blah, blah, blah. But Sesame Street and all these shows and the kind of work that you did, you're literally helping kids learn to read through screens. So how do you feel about this backlash? It's sort of not, it's like not fair. It should be more parsed out, right? I mean, well, what do you
1: think? Obviously there's such a thing as too much screen time. There's also too much violence and a lot of stuff. Some things are great and some things are terrible. But that's true of books as well. It's true of comic books. When when I was a kid, everyone thought comic books were terrible. Now teachers are actually recommending them because kids are reading when they read them. So it's really a question of quality and time limits. If kids watch TV or play video games every single minute, they get no exercise, they make no friends, <laughs> you, know, there's, you know, they're not socialized, they're not learning how to get through the world, so it's obviously too much of a good thing, but obviously we try to do things that are very helpful, and we don't suggest that you watch them 24 hours a day and do nothing else.
0: Right, so it's really just about balance, like everything, Right. Balance and quality. Balance and quality, yes, balance and quality. So you wrote the book Blackie with Paige Peterson, who I've known forever and who I adore. Tell me about that book and how that
1: one came about. Oh, we had a great time doing that book. Actually, as you know, since you know Paige, she's from Tiburon out in Marin County. And there was a horse there named Blackie who was in a pasture that you would drive by as you drive down the main main street into town. And he was famous for being an incredibly lazy horse. He just stood still all day and barely ever moved. So he was always kind of just standing there. And he became kind of a legend in the town. And everybody knew Blackie and Blackie's Pasture. And it seemed like a fun idea for a book, a horse who stood still. And I tried to think with Page of all the advantages that would be like he never got fuzzy in pictures because he stood still. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, he would see what was going on around him while others didn't. He could be observing, et cetera, et cetera. And we made up a crazy story about him. And then we did a book which was used to help raise money to preserve things in the town that needed preservation. So it was kind of a charity project. But of course, we found a wonderful publisher, Lena Tabori, who had a Chronicle Books. And then we had her own publisher, Welcome Books, which is distributed by Random House, just like beginner books are. And I wrote it in verse because that was fun for me. And Paige painted amazing pictures, put a lot of her friends in, though um, <laughs> so not identifying them, but she got a lot of their Tiburon surroundings into the book, obviously. She grew up there. And we've had a nice hit with it. It's been through many printings. It helped raise some money, and it's still in print. So I'm very happy about that, too. That's great.
0: Fantastic. So you've worked with some of the most elite literary authors out there over your whole career at Random House and all the rest of it people like George Plimpton from the Paris Review. And then you've worked with people, well, not even people, then you've worked with like Snuffleupagus. So well, how do you, <laughs> do you see anything that the Muppets and the literary elite have in common?
1: Absolutely. They have to really be into what they're doing. You can't write a book on assignment. I was talking about assignments unless you want to. If you write down to kids because you think this is good for them, but you don't like it yourself, it's not going to work. So passion is one thing all these people have in common, and talent, and talent. I mean, Snuffleupagus was originally Jerry Nelson, who was one of the very first Muppeteers, and Marty Robinson took it over, mainly because it's such a heavy costume, (laughs) takes two people inside it, and Jerry's back was never the same. I don't know how Marty does it, but they're great performers. But people like George Clemson wrote a great kids' book called The Rabbit's Umbrella, actually, well as his adult things. And my dad used to say, even though he published incredible adult authors like William Faulkner and Truman Capote and William Styron, that he said, at least privately, that Ted Geisel might have been the greatest genius of them all. Of course, he didn't say that to John O'Hara or William Faulkner's face, but he did say it was just as brilliant as the others, if not more so. But it's all about talent and passion. That's interesting. And creativity, of course.
0: So you grew up in this insanely talented literary family. you know. As you mentioned, your dad was the co-founder of Random House Books, your mom with the beginner books, even your brother wrote a book. So for someone who's been so involved for so long, where do you think the publishing industry is going from here? Like, what do you make of where it is? And what do you think is coming
1: next for the industry? Well, all of media are changing so fast that it's very hard to answer that question. Nobody really knows. I think people will always like to hold a book in their hands i love to read on an ipad actually because i can bring lots of different books with me wherever i go but i still love the feel of, of a real book and if i love a book i'm almost sure to buy it even if i read it on the ipad first mm. just cuz i'd like to have it and with kids books that's even more true it's just different to have a book and turn the pages and look at the pictures It's not the same on an iPad or on a computer. But beyond that, I think publishing is changing. And a few ways are disturbing to me, just being older and and, uh, having grown up when Random House was tiny. When I worked there first, when I worked for my dad and mom, there were fewer than 100 employees. Now there are tens of thousands worldwide. So... It's hard for the top people in the publishing house to give the kind of attention to single authors that executives used to. But as long as there are little divisions within those houses or the small publishers can still do that. I think one of the problems, though, is that now that publishing has become such big business, the bottom line is more important. It always was important, but not book by book. When I was an editor at Random House, I was supposed to turn a profit. My book list of books should make money or at least break even. But nobody said every single book alone had to do that. If you wanted to build a new author, maybe they would lose money for a while, but you take a chance on them. And some other book would sell a lot of copies and make up the difference. I don't think that's as true now, which makes it harder to break in. And if you have a fairly successful first book, but your second book doesn't do a lot better, then it's a lot harder as a writer to keep going. It used to be easier to have mid-list books. I'm getting into the weeds here. but No, that's interesting. So I, I hope that smaller publishers or the smaller imprints within big publishers will keep being allowed to experiment. And the best publishers always permit that, I think. And the best publishers still do permit that. Excellent.
0: So what do you have coming next? You might do another skunk in my bunk beginner book type book. Uh, what what else what else do you have cooking over there?
1: Well as I mentioned earlier, our big project now in our company is adopting between the lines for classroom use, which I think can be incredibly important. A lot of shows like Sesame is another example. There are decades worth of incredible video, that has the highest education standards and that kids love that are just sitting on shelves, you know, and imagine if we could use those at just the right time in the classroom. It can't just be any time, but but if you were learning the letter B and we could play the letter B song I wrote for Sesame Street at exactly that moment in the classroom, it might really help. Or if a kid were having trouble with that and the computer noticed that from a game the child was playing and then played just the right video or gave them the right game thing to help them learn that, that could be great. So that's the kind of thing I'm really working on in my day job. (laughs) Still lots of fun. And I'm still writing songs and working on all kinds of other education projects. That's amazing. Try to do a funny book once in a while for grownups, too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what do you think people can do to help children's literacy if they can't, you know, write songs for Sesame Street and other amazing things like you. Like, what's the, what if I just want to get involved and help with that effort? What, what do you think? What should I do?
1: <laughs> think a few things. Well, one thing is read aloud to kids. That's Been shown over and over again to be what fosters a love of books and reading. And without that love of reading, it's going to be a chore for kids and they'll never really get into it. And if they don't learn to read, how are they going to learn everything else? So that's one thing every parent should do and every caregiver should do. Another thing is make sure that books are in children, are available to children. I'm on the board of an incredible organization called First Book, which allows kids who are less affluent to get either free books or books in their classroom and that they can be purchased at very much lower prices than normal by schools and things. And you could give to them or to Reading is Fundamental is another great organization. So that's another way to help. But I think making sure that there are books in kids' environment is the most important thing you can do and getting them to love reading.
0: And do you have any advice for aspiring authors out there?
1: Yeah. Keep writing and realize that it isn't easy, that some people think kids' books are much easier to write than grown-up books. And they may be easier in theory, but writing a good one still takes a lot of care and work and inspiration. And unless you're just an absolute natural genius, you have to be prepared to work at it, to take advice, to be rejected. Don't give up and make sure you enjoy it. If it's drudgery for you, You're never gonna, I think, really stick with it long enough to make it work. And I love the stuff I write. I I think all of us at Sesame Street, over 50 years now, it's the 50th anniversary of the show, believe it or not, all of us have had an amazingly good time doing it. And I think that's why people like the show. It shows that everybody's having a great time. They think it's funny. The actors love the characters they play. The puppeteers are brilliant. We love writing and seeing what those puppeteers will do with our material on every level. It's just enjoying it is key to success, I think.
0: I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your hard-earned wisdom with listeners. Of-
1: hard-earned, but lots of fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Kids do have time to read books, and moms don't have time to read books. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you, Ziddi. Thanks again to my sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.